Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we are going to learn about the history of the color green and the sport called bandy, a cross between ice hockey and soccer. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 28. From the color green to bandy. Social Sciences Today, we continue our trek through learning the history of the different colors. In episode 11, we learned about the color blue and its start in ancient Egypt, all the way through the recent development of a brand new blue hue. Then in episode 20, we discuss the color orange and learn whether the fruit or the color came first. Today, we are going to learn about the color associated with nature, but has also been connected to some of the most poisonous pigments in history, the color green. The color was introduced into language after the words for black, white, and red, and either before or after the word for yellow, depending on the language. The very first written records of the word green dates back to 1000 where it can be found in the Cadman manuscript. But just like the color blue, green's actual history starts way back with the ancient Egyptians where it was associated with regeneration and rebirth. Ancient Egyptians created their green pigment from the copper mineral called malachite and used it to paint tomb paintings. There were two pretty major downfalls to using malachite though, the cost of the pigment and that over time the green dye turned black. What they did was to soak copper plates in wine which created a green pigment, verdigris, from weathering of the metal. They used the pigment in mosaics, frescoes, and stained glass and medieval monks also used it in their manuscripts. Verdigris also turned black over time, but was probably one of the most vibrant green pigments until the 19th century, though on the downside, it was pretty toxic. But the toxicity of green pigments did not end with verdigris. Through the Middle Ages and Renaissance, the color green became the color of merchants, bankers, and gentry, while red became the color of nobility. This is why in England's parliament, the House of Commons seats are green while the House of Lords seats are red. Early Renaissance painters also discovered that by painting a green undercoat on faces with a layer of pink on top, the green undercoat helped make the face appear more realistic. Unfortunately though, the color pink in these paintings have faded over time and some of the faces that were painted with this technique have taken on a sickly green hue instead. Now let's fast forward to 1775, when the next major green pigment was developed by Swedish chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele. The color was called Scheele's green and was a bright green hue. Because of its vibrancy, it quickly replaced earlier mineral and vegetable dyes and was soon found everywhere from paper and wall hangings to fabrics and even toys for children. There was only one slightly major problem, the pigment 
extremely toxic. The pigment was discovered when Scheele was doing research on arsenic. Now going back to chemistry, he found that by adding arsenious oxide to heated sodium carbonate and mixing until the ingredients were dissolved created sodium arsenite. Then by adding copper sulfate to the sodium arsenite, a bright green pigment was created. It was cheap and easy to make and had long durability, hence its mass distribution. It wasn't long before the paint was found to be toxic though, as people began falling ill. There were stories of children becoming sick in their bright green rooms and ladies wearing green dresses who were also falling ill. It was eventually replaced by a new green pigment, but not before the possibility of it contributing to Napoleon Bonaparte's death. It has been found that Bonaparte's wallpaper in his bedroom on St. Helena, where he was exiled, was made with a pigment, though some studies on the wallpaper found there was only enough arsenic content to cause illness but not necessarily his death. So after Shields Green lost his popularity due to his toxicity, it was replaced by a new hue called Paris Green or Emerald Green, which was invented in 1808 and was made available for distribution in 1814. It was a bright green emerald color, but unfortunately it was also highly toxic due to its arsenic content and was eventually banned, though not till the 1960s. Many French Impressionists, including Claude Monet and Paul Cezanne, used this hue, though it is believed that it contributed to Cezanne's diabetes and Monet's blindness. Some other interesting facts about the color green is that because it is in the middle of the visible color spectrum that runs from red to blue, it is the color where our perception is at its best. Some researchers even believe that because our eyes are able to detect green the easiest, the shade may be calming as our eyes are under the least amount of strain to perceive the color so our nervous system can relax. I hope you enjoyed our little tour through the poisonous history of the color green. Sports and Entertainment Today, we are going to learn about a sport that is popular in Scandinavian countries as well as Russia, and that sport is bandy. Bandy is kind of a combination of ice hockey and soccer or football, depending on what you call it. The sport shares an ancestry with hockey, but diverged into two distinct sports when ice hockey developed in Canada and bandy formalized its roles in England. Bandy's modern history dates back to the late 19th century, at the same time that English football was really starting to grow in popularity, with new clubs forming every year. Many of these clubs began to play bandy during the wintertime to help maintain conditioning, and as clubs began competing, it was recognized that official roles needed to be established. As the majority of teams play bandy were English football clubs, the rules were heavily influenced by English football or soccer rules as we will see. So the next question is, how do you play bandy? Just like ice hockey, bandy is played on ice, but on a rink that is larger than the typical ice hockey rink. Not surprisingly, the size of the rink is equivalent to about the size of a football or soccer pitch. While ice hockey is comprised of three periods, bandy is played in two 45-minute halves, again like soccer. Each team typically plays with 11 players, 10 skaters, and one goalie. The skaters are typically divided into three defenders that help the goalie defend their goal, 
four midfielders that help the transition between the defense and offense, and three offensive players to score the goals. Three to four players sit on the bench and can substitute regularly at any time. The goal in bandy is 11 feet by 7 feet, which is significantly larger than a hockey goal, which is 6 feet by 4 feet. An offside rule is also in place, which is similar to soccer, and there are corner strokes, stroke-ins, and goal throws when a ball goes out of bounds, similar to corner kicks, throw-ins, and goal kicks in soccer. The skaters play with a bandy stick, which are curved sticks that are shorter than hockey sticks in both height and length of the blade. The goalie does not use a stick, but wears two catching gloves. Oh, and another big difference between hockey and bandy is that bandy is played with a bright orange ball instead of a hockey puck, making the game a lot quicker. Unlike hockey, body checking and fighting are not allowed in bandy, which is making the sport popular for former college players who still want to play on the ice but not get body checked. In an article published in the New York Times by Jeff Klein on January 28, 2010, he quotes Rick Haney, a former Harvard hockey player and at the time the captain of the American bandy team. Haney says of bandy, after I graduated, I played in men's hockey leagues, and I always came home bleeding. Then I tried bandy, and as soon as I stepped out on the ice, I knew I was home. Despite its beginning popularity when it was first invented, bandy slowly was replaced with Canadian ice hockey in many locations, as it was a more manageable game to play with a smaller ring size and a smaller number of players needed. The game is still played though in the Nordic countries and in Russia, especially in its Arctic cities and Siberia, though other countries play it as well. In fact, in May 2013, Somali refugees who were living in Sweden created the Somalia national bandy team and were able to take their team all the way to the 2014 Bandy World Championships, where they have played every year since then. They also play regularly in the second division of Sweden under the name Peace and Love. The current goal for many bandy players and fans is to get the sport recognized and included in the Winter Olympics. So if you're looking for a sport that is a speedier version of ice hockey with soccer rules scattered in, then bandy may be the sport you're looking for. Science and Technology the Royal Astronomical Society of London is a society that focuses on the development of astronomy and geophysics and related subjects. In an article published on Scientia, the president of the society at the time, Mike Cruz, describes how the society was initially formed. He states that the RAS began life as the Astronomical Society of London and the idea for forming it arose at a dinner on January 12, 1820 in the Freemasons Tavern in London. The dinner was attended by a group of distinguished amateur astronomers and scientists. Following the idea, the society was created on March 10, 1820 with the original goals of the society to promote the field of astronomy. Almost 11 years after its foundation, its royal charter was signed by William IV on March 7, 1831, and the society received its official name of the Royal Astronomical Society. In its beginning, the RAS didn't have a home and met at various locations throughout London, including rooms of the Geological Society, rooms of the Medical and Surgical Society, 
as well as Somerset House in the Strand. In 1874, they finally obtained a home in the Burlington House on Piccadilly, with their first meeting at the location being held on November 13, 1874. The society also adopted the motto, Whatever shines should be observed. Today, the society admits two types of members, fellows and friends. Fellows are full members of RAS and can use the letters FRAS at the end of their names. This type of membership is open to anyone who is over 18 and considered acceptable to the society. Technically, no formal qualifications are needed to join, and this is because the society was created prior to there being a large amount of professional astronomers. Two routes to become a fellow of RAS are available today. The first is for those who know a current member of RAS. These applicants can just ask the current fellow to nominate them. The second method for those who do not know a current member is to fill out the application form, which must contain a reference from a professional person who knows your involvement in astronomy and or geophysics. Application forms are both completed and submitted through the Royal Astronomical Society's website at ras.ac.uk. Successful applicants are typically students enrolled in degrees related to astronomy or geophysics, people with a professional interest in astronomy or geophysics who also hold professional qualifications, amateurs who have shown a strong commitment to the two fields of science, and other professionals and supporters who have served the wider interests of the society and have helped to further the aims of RAS. For those who do not fulfill the typical criteria for becoming a fellow, they can join the RAS as a friend of the society. This was launched in 2009 as an initiative for those who, while they had no professional qualifications, are still interested in astronomy and or geophysics. Friends can attend friends-only lectures on topics such as Einstein's monsters, the life and times of black holes, and the future of space travel. They also receive priority booking at RAS public lectures. Friends also have access to the Society's Historic Library, which contains 35,000 bound items such as books and journals, as well as a large collection of unbound pamphlets. Each year, the RAS also holds their biggest meeting, known as the National Astronomy Meeting, which is held over three to four days every spring or early summer. They also award two gold medals each year, one for astronomy and one for geophysics, most often to recognize extraordinary lifetime achievements. Albert Einstein won in 1926 and Stephen Hawking in 1985. Caroline Herschel was the first woman to receive the award in 1828 for her groundbreaking work on nebulae, but the next woman to win wasn't until 1996 when Vera Runin was awarded the medal. Other awards that the Society gives include the Eddington Medal and the Herschel Medal, awarded for outstanding merit in theoretical and observational astrophysics, respectively. The Chapman Medal for investigations of outstanding merit in the science of the sun, space, and planetary environments, or solar terrestrial physics, and the Price Medal for investigations of outstanding merit in solid earth geophysics, oceanography, or planetary sciences. Today, the three main functions of RAS are to maintain the library, organize scientific meetings, and publish journals. 
The monthly notices are the RAS's flagship astronomy journal, and it is published three times a month, including topics from positional astronomy, astrophysics, and space science. They also publish a geophysical journal, as well as the Astronomy and Geophysics Journal, which is a full-color glossy journal of news and reviews to the fellowship. So for those who have an interest in astronomy, this is an organization you may want to look into, especially if you live in Great Britain, where they are located. Geography and World Culture Today, we travel to the Beaufort Sea, which is located north of Canada in Alaska. It stretches along the northern coast of Alaska, Yukon, and the western northwest territories of Canada. Beaufort Sea was named for the Irish hydrographer and officer, Admiral Sir Francis Beaufort of the Royal Navy. Born in County Meath, Ireland, he first joined the Royal Navy at the age of 13 as a cabin boy. When he was in his later teens, he started to grow interested in weather, and he eventually created the Beaufort Scale to describe wind force. Now let's get back to the sea that bears his name. Because Beaufort Sea is so far north, it is actually under ice almost year-round. The only months that the ice will break up, and typically just near the coast, are August and September. There are three major forms of sea ice in Beaufort Sea. Landfast ice is attached to the shore and extends to variable distances offshore. It is a seasonal phenomenon which typically begins forming in late September or early October and its deterioration starts in early March and by late June, open water season begins. The next type of ice is packed ice which is typically found in the central portion of the Arctic Ocean. It is composed from multi-year ice and some first-year ice flows. It moves offshore in the summer months. Lastly is seasonal ice, which occurs between landfast and packed ice during the winter. Along with the three types of sea ice, the sea also has four different water masses, with surface water mass the closest to the surface and moving down to the bottom water mass at the bottom of the sea. The surface water mass at almost 330 feet thick has the coldest temps of the four water masses, with temperatures ranging from 28.8 Fahrenheit to 29.5 Fahrenheit. The subsurface water mass is located below the surface water mass and is much warmer than the surface water mass, though the deep Atlantic water mass, which is right below it, is the warmest of all, with temps ranging from 32 to 34 degrees Fahrenheit or 0 to 1 degrees Celsius. The bottom water mass is just slightly cooler than the deep Atlantic water mass. The Beaufort Sea is also home to many animals, including the beluga, bowhead whale, walrus, and polar bears. Beard seals, ring seals, and spotted seals also call the Beaufort Sea home. Birds include the yellow-billed and red-throated loons, the brant, and the common spectacle and king eiders. So, there you have it. I hope you learned a little bit more about the Beaufort Sea. Today's random topic. Today's random Wikipedia page brings us to a book publisher called Prometheus Books. Prometheus Books was founded in 1969 by Paul Kurtz, a philosopher known for his argument for a comprehensive philosophy of secular humanism. He was born in 1925 and received a BA from New York University 
and a MA and PhD from Columbia University. He then became a professor of philosophy and has also authored or edited over 40 books. He named his book publisher Prometheus after the Greek god who gave fire to man as a metaphor for bringing knowledge. His headquarters are in Amherst, New York, and his books are sold and distributed worldwide, with titles being translated into over 50 different languages. The publisher currently has 1,700 books in print and focuses on publishing nonfiction, including popular science, critical thinking, philosophy, history, and true crime. Since its founding, they have published over 2,500 books and typically publish 95 to 100 new books per year. Authors who have been published include Nobel Laureate Leon Letterman, Hayden Planetarium Director Neil deGrasse Tyson, science writer Martin Gardner, and several philosophers, including Paul Kurtz himself. Today, Paul Kurtz's son, Jonathan Kurtz, runs the company, and recently, in 2019, the Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group acquired the assets of Prometheus Books. Jonathan Kurtz remains on board, and books will continue to be published under the Prometheus imprint. The CEO of Roman and Littlefield Publish Group, Jed Lyons, had a say of Prometheus Books in a quote from an article by Jim Milliot, published in Publisher Weekly on June 19, 2019. John Kurtz and his team built Prometheus Books into one of the most respected independent publishers in the nation. Its backlist of 1,700 academic and trade titles is a perfect fit for Roman and Littlefield. We are delighted that John and Jake will carry on as part of our team. So go look through your bookshelf and see if any of those books you own were published by Prometheus Books. That concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you will be able to access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. I hope to have that fully updated by the end of next month. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about the FAT4 gene and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Carl Sagan. In that case, on behalf of Earthlife, I urge that, with full knowledge of our limitations, we vastly increase our knowledge of the solar system and then begin to settle other worlds. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot. Mm-hmm.